Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jeffrey Bingham. He's been a friend of mine for a long time, and he teaches now at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. He's the Associate Dean of Biblical and Theological Studies and Professor of Theology, a wonderful patristic scholar who loves Jesus Christ and his church, and it's an honor to have you on the Beeson Podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. George. My pleasure to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I think I first met you at Dallas Theological Seminary some years ago. I think that's correct. Uh, We met uh, together personally uh, when you were giving a set of lectures at the Mm -hmm. seminary. And, of course, I'd known uh, about you for a long time uh, before then through your ministry and your writing. But we first uh, set eyes on each other uh, at Dallas Seminary. And from Dallas to Wheaton, uh, how's your life gone? It's, uh, it's been a wonderful uh, two and a uh, half years at uh, yeah. Wheaton. Yeah. The, uh, the college is extremely gracious and welcoming to Pamela and to me. And uh, the, uh, the makeup of the, uh, of the Department of Biblical and Theological Studies is second to none. And I work with a very generous and collegial people. Wonderful institution. Now, you are a patristic scholar. Uh, I am. An evangelical patristic scholar. How about that? That's a little unusual. (laughs) It shouldn't be so unusual, uh, but tell us about how you got interested in the early church in patristics. Well, it all began uh, in my THM uh, years when I was pursuing that degree. I took a class on the early church, and that sparked my interest. But that really wasn't uh, what, uh, what eventually led me to specialize in them. Uh, That happened uh, during my doctoral studies when I approached my mentor, Craig Blazing, and told him that my greatest interest was in theological methodology. And what did he believe was the greatest training ground to learn the exercise and the specificity uh, of good theological method? And he said the patristic period. It was the constructive period. It was the first period of doctrinal development in Christianity. So he encouraged me to, uh, to major in that period and uh, recommended uh, Irenaeus. And in actual consultation with a couple of my Cistercian friends at the University of Dallas, uh, we focused on uh, Irenaeus and his use of Matthew's Gospel. University of Dallas is a Catholic university, a very fine academic center, isn't it? Yes, it is. And in Dallas, we were very fortunate to have uh, a second century faculty seminar, uh, which involved faculty from a variety of institutions in the Southwest. SMU, University of Dallas, Southwestern Seminary, Dallas Seminary, Baylor in uh, Waco, uh, and other institutions, including TCU in Fort Worth, and faculty that specialized in the second century and in New Testament scholarship. All of this headed up by the marvelous, uh, wonderful Everett Ferguson yes. and uh, Bill Farmer, right. uh, greats of, uh, of biblical and uh, patristic scholarship. We learned a, so much from them, and you've been right in the thick of that movement yourself. By, uh, by the grace of God and by the, uh, the help of those friends, uh, I was able to immerse myself deeply into second century scholarship. You mentioned the name Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about who he was and why he's important. Irenaeus uh, was a, uh, an early church father of the second century, born in Smyrna, the Pearl of the Aegean, uh, discipled and mentored by Polycarp, and uh, learned uh, the basics of theology from uh, the tutelage of uh, Polycarp, eventually made his way to Rome and then to Lyon uh, in uh, central uh, France, and uh, there he was a presbyter for uh, a few years, just prior to the, uh, uh, the persecution that hit uh, Lyon and the neighboring city of Vienne uh, around, uh, or precisely in 177 mm. AD. Uh, Christians were gathered up from both uh, cities, brought to uh, the amphitheater in Lyon, and uh, held captive there and eventually taken into the amphitheater uh, to be put to death. And we have some martyr stories from some of those Christians who suffered, like Blandina, the slave girl. We do, and uh, Eusebius preserves for us actually a letter that was written by the Christian survivors of Lyon that they were sending back home to Asia Minor to let them know what happened. And so we have a very detailed account of those uh, martyrdoms. Lyon at that time was, uh, pardon me, Irenaeus at that time was probably in Rome on a ministry uh, given to him by uh, the Bishop of Lyon, Pothinus. And so he wasn't present in Lyon during the persecution, survived them while his uh, predecessor in the episcopacy, uh, Pothinus, was actually beaten to death uh, at the hands of the Romans. And when Irenaeus then returned to Lyon after the persecutions, he was then uh, put into the office of bishop. Now, Irenaeus is important for lots of reasons. You've, you've mentioned that he was a, a student, a disciple of Polycarp yes. in Smyrna, where he was born. And, of course, Polycarp, we know, was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was. So in Irenaeus, we are just one generation removed from those who knew and saw the, the apostles. That's exactly right. And so we're very, very close uh, to the, uh, the hands-on teaching of the Apostle John. And uh, Irenaeus gives great credence uh, to the Apostles, of course, understands himself to be in the line of succession, uh, one who has inherited uh, the original apostolic teaching originated by the Apostles, passed on to him through the hands of the likes of Polycarp, Clement of Rome, uh, and uh, Papias, uh, and so he is receiving all of these teachings, as you said, just one generation uh, uh, previous uh, to him. Now, you've written about Irenaeus a number of things. One of your books is Irenaeus' Use of Matthew's Gospel in Adverses Heresis Against Heresies. That's Irenaeus' most famous book, isn't it? Against Heresies. It is. It's the book that is uh, most well-known. Uh, he has another book, uh, which uh, we still have access to, The Demonstration of the Apostolic Teaching, but Adversus Horasis is his best-known work and his greatest work. Mm -hmm. Tell us who the Horasis, the heretics, were against whom he was writing. Yes, so primarily the uh, Valentinians, a uh, group uh, of, uh, of people who considered themselves to be Christians, actually the true Christians, 
and who had a group of writings uh, that uh, included the New Testament and Old Testament, but a group of writings that they felt were even superior to those books that they had received through a special revelation given to people uh, within their guild. And uh, this uh, group of teachings and this uh, extra scriptures, additional gospels that they had to... Uh, uh, to the original four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, led them to construct uh, the most uh, uh, interesting uh, mythological concept of the origin of the world and of salvation. Uh, in addition, uh, his other great uh, opponent was Martian. And uh, so mostly Adversus Horasis is a polemic against the Valentinians and against the Marcionites. Now, uh, we often group those uh, heretics uh, you just described as Gnostics. Uh, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism comes in a variety of forms, and uh, so uh, we, our knowledge of Gnosticism has grown very, very much in the last 50 years, particularly since the discovery of the Nag Hammadi documents uh, uh, around uh, the midpoint of the 20th century, right okay. around the same time that the Dead Sea Scrolls were right. discovered. So Gnosticism is a very diverse movement. Valentinianism is one school within Gnosticism. Sethianism would be another. Mm -hmm. In general, we could probably describe uh, the Gnostic myth as a myth that would envision a primary uh, superior god, normally termed the father or propator, and then a second god, the creator of the world, normally termed the demiurge. And so the father and the demiurge or creator are two different beings, two different spiritual beings. The demiurge, the creator, is understood to be a wicked and evil being, and therefore everything he creates, the physical material world, bodies, rocks and stones, trees and mountains, all of these things are viewed to be uh, worthless and without value, while only the spiritual, the immaterial, and the celestial would be viewed to be of worth and of eternal uh, value. And so their Christology then becomes very interesting but terribly heretical. They envision a Savior who is sent from the Father to the world in order to save the true Gnostics who have become entrapped in the world, being entrapped in their bodies in particular. And uh, the Savior comes, takes on the form of a human being, but not the reality of a body or of flesh, because flesh and body are wicked and evil. And uh, he comes and he teaches these Gnostics the truth, and by learning the truth, by coming to know the truth, they then are able to be saved, and salvation for them is simply being set free from their bodies and returning uh, to the celestial world of the Father. In other words, escaping the world of the Creator. One word that uh, we often use to describe this this way of seeing the world and certainly the Christian faith is docetism. Yes. And certainly the Valentinians and people like Marcion would be docetists. What is docetism? Docetism uh, is a doctrine that originates from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear to be, but not to be really. 
And so docetism would teach that Christ came to the world, but he wasn't really flesh. He didn't really take on human body. And uh, so he just seemed or appeared to be flesh and body, but wasn't really. And so if you had tried to embrace him, you would have been embracing a phantom. So when Jesus walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and stepped into the sand, his foot did not leave a print because it wasn't a real foot. It wasn't a real foot. He just seemed or appeared to have a foot. Now, if, if this sounds somewhat weird to you as our listener, uh, especially if you've been brought up in the Christian faith and you've read the gospel, I think we should not underestimate the enormous appeal that this kind of message had in a world filled with anxiety. That's right. And, of course, uh, I want to ask you this question because uh, some of the things that come out and when we study Gnosticism, the docetists of the second century against whom Irenaeus was writing, sound uh, eerily familiar to various patterns of spirituality we still have with us today. Could you yes. say a word about that? Yes. So it's not uh, strange to find within popular Christianity today the idea that salvation is nothing more than gaining release from the body because the body is evil and the body is holding me back from my true potential as a spiritual being, as a soul or as a spirit. And so it's very popular to believe that salvation does not consist in the salvation of the physical and material things that the God that we love and worship created with value and with goodness. And so this frequently leads to a de-emphasis on the glorious doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It frequently leads to a de-emphasis on a doctrine of the future that echoes with Isaiah and with Peter that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, that the earth will be refinished and renewed and uh, that it will uh, be given uh, beauty uh, again and refreshed again. And so this leads to an emphasis on the immaterial, and it uh, leads to a disparagement of the material, and this can actually affect the way in which we love human beings. Mm. We begin to see human beings as merely immaterial things rather than physical and material things. We often, therefore, neglect to meet their physical needs, uh, to, uh, to embrace them, to comfort them, to put a blanket around a shivering shoulder, or to provide a meal for a hungry and starving person. And so we find that docetism is even rebuked and written against in the New Testament. The Apostle John, uh, in the second uh, of his epistles, declares to us that if you want to know who the Antichrist is, the Antichrist is the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Yes. And this leads to an absence of authentic love, and to tr it denies true Christian and uh, social uh, community. Now, Irenaeus was a bishop in the church, he was a leader in the church, and he, he set forth a number of, you might call, safeguards uh, against this kind of teaching, which was, which was rampant in his day, and yes. really uh, vitiating the life of the church in many ways. It was, it was life-threatening. And I want to ask you to comment on these three ideas that are certainly found in Irenaeus, and what, if anything, they have to teach us today. One is the canon of Scripture, uh, and the other one is uh, the uh, role of the bishop. And the third one is the creed, or the affirmation of faith. Yes. So, 
His understanding of the canon is in direct conflict to the Gnostic or Marcionite understanding of the canon. Uh, Martian, if you'll recall, had done away completely with the Old Testament. So he was left with merely uh, ten of Paul's epistles and the Gospel of Luke carefully edited. Uh, the Valentinians had kept the Old Testament, but they were interpreting it in a very, very unorthodox manner, as I've described earlier. And so you had both an interpretive uh, problem for those who kept the Old Testament, and then for those, the Marcionites, who had rejected the Old Testament, you had a canonical problem. So Irenaeus needs to respond to both of these problems. And so on one level, he responds canonically by insisting uh, and by recognizing that the Old Testament, the scripture of the Jews, is indeed Christian scripture. And it must not be read as the Gnostics read it or merely as a good rabbinic Jew would read it, mm. but as a Christian would read it in order to gain from it all the nourishment that uh, comes to us by understanding that the Old Testament anticipates and promises Jesus Christ in continuity with the New. And so Irenaeus spends a good amount of time in demonstrating the continuity, the promise and the fulfillment between the Old Testament and the New in order to demonstrate that Christians have a canon which is composed of two parts, the Old and the New. And so that solved, uh, or that was the response to the Martianite problem. But you still had the Gnostic problem, which was a hermeneutical or interpretive problem. And this is where the creed comes in. And so one just doesn't read the Bible willy-nilly. One just doesn't open Genesis or Isaiah and read Genesis or Isaiah as they might personally like to in light of their own preferences and presuppositions. No, one must read both the Old and New Testament in light of what has been received from the Apostles, passed down from the Apostles through Polycarp and Papias and Clement of Rome, received then by Irenaeus, formulated into a variety of doctrinal statements that we know of as creeds, which are uh, all saying the same thing in Irenaeus's time, although they appear in different forms, but these are provided as hermeneutical interpretive guides for reading the Old Testament. Irenaeus even has a wonderful phrase that he says that the baptized Christian at baptism has received the rule of faith into his or her heart, and by virtue of having received the rule of faith, they are now competent to go forth and to read the scriptures. Mm, that's wonderful. I'm going to get to the bishop in a moment, but uh, while you're on the creed, uh, very often this kind of early Christian affirmation, confession of faith, uh, was something used at baptism. And what does Irenaeus have to say about baptism? Yes, so Irenaeus uh, understands that baptism is the doctrine or the, uh, the act of uh, origination. You become part of the Christian community by means of baptism. You have uh, previously been taught the rule of faith in a catechetical or discipleship setting where an instructor, probably the bishop himself or one of his presbyters, 
has taught anybody who has expressed an interest in Christianity the rule of faith. They've taught them the main doctrines. They've taught them the main uh, interpretive uh, guidelines for reading the Bible. And so before one is baptized, one has been well taught, one has been well instructed over a period of time that could last for weeks, in some instances even months. And then after having learned this material, and after having expressed ownership of this material, one is then brought to the waters of baptism. And then at that uh, event, one is then recognized as a Christian, as a member of the Blessed Community. So there was a, you might say, a coherence between uh, theology and liturgy, between the creed and the enactment of the faith. Absolutely. In baptism. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, the, the role of the bishop? Uh, Irenaeus was a bishop. Uh, tell us about how bishops functioned uh, yes. in that world. So the, 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 uh, the, the rule of the church by uh, the, the bishops or an episcopal form of church government is in their understanding, is actually informed by the model of the Trinitarian God. Uh, God the Father is the first and prime person of the Godhead. Uh, from him, uh, the Son is begotten and the Spirit proceeds. Mm -hmm. And so, because there is a primary person in the Trinity, their understanding of church government is that there should be one primary person who is ruling the church. And that's where the idea of the bishop comes from. Uh, and under them uh, is the College of Presbyters, and these are the gentlemen uh, who do the hands-on pastoral labor. But the person who stands as the chief guardian, as the chief protector, as the grand defender of the faith against the heretics, is the bishop. And so, in the bishop, you have one person who protects the one rule of faith, who protects the one canon, who protects the one apostolic uh, teaching that was passed down. And so, you always know who it is uh, that guards these things. And by this, they understood that they would then protect themselves against a diversity of Christianities one Christianity rather than many, and that was housed in the office of the bishop. I want to ask you to comment on two more words uh, that are associated, two statements that are associated with Irenaeus. Uh, one is, is, is the word recapitulation, uh, recapitulatio. What, what does that mean? That's a big, big Latin word, and I know it's based on a Greek word in Ephesians, but tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so we find uh, anakephaleosis in Ephesians 1.10. And uh, there uh, Paul refers to Christ as the one who sums everything up in himself. Paul here is attempting to express to us the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, uh, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which he, because of the Father's will, now gathers up everything and uh, is a Lord and ruler over all things, giving to all things his blessings. Irenaeus takes this term and begins to run through the scripture with it, seeing that there are various ways in which God sums up various things. 
And so uh, the, uh, the grand plan of God is that uh, he is going to take the earth that he created in the beginning, which has experienced a fall into evil and is now broken and, uh, and uh, not the world that God originally created. It's infected with sin. Uh, but uh, Irenaeus has this grand biblical theology where God is going to take the original but broken creation and through the work of Jesus Christ in the end times is going to renew, refashion, revive, and refresh what God originally created by virtue of his blessed Son, Jesus Christ. All things that God the Father originally created will be summed up, renewed, refashioned, and, uh, and represented uh, at the end of time. What a wonderful vision. What it a, is a wonderful What a great vision. hope that Christians have. It makes a great sermon. Yeah, it does. The, the other phrase that's often attributed to Irenaeus, uh, that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Yes. What does that mean? So, a great doctrinal conflict between Irenaeus and the Valentinians was their view of human beings. The Valentinians understood that human beings were essentially a spirit or a soul, not a body. And uh, there were only some human beings that had been created to be saved. Not all human beings had an opportunity to be saved. Only some special human beings that had been created merely with spirits, as spirits, were at the end of time going to reascend back to the Father. What Irenaeus argues is that no, uh, human beings through the work of Christ, uh, first of all, are all the same. They are both material and immaterial. And the history of redemption, the story of redemption from creation to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory is all about how how, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is renewing humanity, uh, valuing everything humanity is, both spirit and soul, uh, both body and immaterial. And uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus, uh, taking them to the end of time to where those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be resurrected to a true life mm. that can only be experienced through the indwelling of the Spirit and the resurrection of the body. Uh, Dr. Bingham, if uh, some of our listeners would like to know more about Irenaeus or this period of early Christian history, uh, what would you advise them to, to do? So I, I, would, uh, I would recommend uh, some wonderful books that have been written. I would recommend John Baer's book on Irenaeus of Lyon, published by Oxford. I would recommend Eric Osborne's book on Irenaeus, published by Cambridge. I would recommend Dennis Min's book on Irenaeus. And I would, uh, for those who just want a very quick introduction to his life and his teaching and his writings, I would recommend an essay that I wrote in the Rutledge Companion to Early Christian Theology, where there is a special chapter on Irenaeus there that will give them an immediate uh, introduction to the life and works of Irenaeus. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Jeffrey Bingham. He's Associate Dean of Biblical and Theological Studies, a professor of theology at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Dr. George.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.